Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. When I think of hearing from God, I, I might assume I'm doing ministry that perfectly fits my gifting. Then I, I read about Simon Peter ministering to believers in Joppa. Now, at the time, he was living with Simon the Tanner. Cool name. Should be a TV series, don't you think? A tanner was a leather maker, someone who treated animal pelts, a trade that Jews considered unclean. Simon the Tanner lived out by the sea, I'm guessing probably for a couple of reasons. Easy access to receive the pelts coming in and to be able to more easily ship the finished product going out. Another big reason he was out by the sea was probably the massive stink that would be 24-7 from the tanning process. So Peter's living there and was there long enough to feel comfortable inviting guests and welcoming strangers to stay with him there. Hmm. Although Peter was a fisherman... He may have been working or apprenticing in the tanning trade with Simon, his host. It was during his stay in Simon the Tanner's home that Peter received the revelation from God that salvation was also for the Gentiles. God had a vision for him and a mind-blowing message. Gentiles were to be welcomed into the fellowship of believers. All the while, while being at the home of Simon the Tanner in his stinky home by the sea. I never know when I'm going to be prompted by the Holy Spirit or what I will be doing when it happens. But I do know some of the most unlikely times I get God's Word more alive in my heart than ever before is when I'm in different places and spaces. I may never work in a tanning shop by the sea, but I do hope to one day tan by the sea. Who am I kidding? I don't tan. Anyway, I've got a full hour with Dr. Mark Muska today. Ask the professor, which means let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Mark, welcome to the show. Yeah. Hey, Rosie, we need to let him just keep talking. That was pretty good, wasn't it? I like it. Yeah. Preach it. It's Bill at its best. It is. best. I love when he does that. Well, first of all, Simon the Tanner, you know, cool guy, I think. And Peter's there living with him. And he gets this incredible revelation. The sheet drops down. Can we talk about this, Mark? <laughs> this is amazing. Well, it's so real. There's some, <laughs> there, there's some comedy in there because oh. <laughs> remember at the end of it, it says, Luke tells us, now Peter was greatly perplexed at the meaning of the vision. You know, he's yeah. sitting there scratching his head going, what was that? Yeah. And I haven't even had dinner yet. You know I mean? Right. That, <laughs> and so, but God had a lesson for him. And what a profound message he got. Mm-hmm. That the, the salvation was also for the Gentiles. Yep. It was a roadblock for most of those Jews. They struggled with it because even after he went to Cornelius' home in Acts 10, the Jewish Christians were all over him I know they were. in chapter 11. Yeah. What are you doing going and eating with, I know. with uh, Gentiles? And so he had to explain the whole shmeal, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I like that too. And it says, well, they settled down and they said, well, then, you know, God's given the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles too. Can't you just see him going, oh, um, 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 um. you know, we don't like it, but you know, okay, Lord. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and then the timing of the visitors uh, to Simon the Tanner's house mm-hmm. after the vision, and then he shows up at Cornelius's house, and boy, everyone gets saved. Yep. It's one of the best uh, single verses in the Bible to describe what the gospel is. In yeah. Acts 10, when he finishes his sermon, uh, he, he says it in the next verse, it says, while he was yet speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on the whole bunch, and they all got baptized in the Spirit. And he says this, uh, let's see here, I think it's about, uh, yeah, verse 43, Acts ten forty-three. Of him, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of mm-hmm. sins. That's the baby right there. <laughs> yeah, and Mark, isn't it interesting where there's people will say, I just don't know if I'm if I'm doing God's will. And, I mean, here's Peter, a fisherman, mm-hmm. living long enough with Simon the Tanner, he might have been helping him out there as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was witnessing to believers in Joppa, but uh, also probably helping out around the tanning shop, I would guess, mm-hmm. um, feeling comfortable enough to invite guests of his own to the house. So mm. that's that's pretty comfortable. And then he hears from God in that time. Yeah. We've said this many times before. I hope there's reruns in heaven. You know, <laughs> do don't you want to see this stuff? Yeah, totally. and be able to sit in a cloud over oh, it all, yeah. like some you know drone up there, and yes. just watch and listen. That's just glorious. Yeah, I'm That's also good. I'm also kicking around First Peter. I've been studying a little yeah. bit there, and I'm in chapter four right now. Mm-hmm. And I would love your understanding of this passage, starting in chapter four, verse one. Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then verse 2, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. I don't know for sure, but I think he's saying that uh, when, when Christians get persecuted, when we suffer, when we're going through difficult things, boy, it washes everything out pretty clear. And that those old lusts and that uh, those are usually for the leisure time or the prosperous time where you got time to go and chase women or drink booze or something like that. But uh, we were just saying before the show, these uh, beloved brothers and sisters of ours in Afghanistan right right now, I don't think they're really struggling much with lust. (laughs) They're probably just trying to stay alive. They're hanging on and thinking uh, the next knock on the door could be the end of their life. Right. So it kind of, it settles things out, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It makes it come into focus really pretty clear. Mm -hmm. That whole chapter, he talks a lot about suffering. Verse 14, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in this name. So, really good stuff. Mm-hmm. But there almost seems like there's a conspiracy between getting older and God's Word, because as you get older, and maybe the body doesn't work the way it once did, um, and you start to realize that it's much easier to flee some of youthful lusts. And Well, you're not quite as crazy as you were when you were true. in your 20s. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. that's, that's very true. But in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus makes some uh, pretty provocative statements about the measures we should do to avoid sin in our life. Yeah, uh, this is um, 
This is is provocative. In fact, we've had uh, some very zealous Christians in the past uh, uh, maim themselves uh, because of those uh, verses there about your hand causing you to stumble, cut mm-hmm. it off, mm-hmm. and your eye causing you to stumble, gouge it out. And uh, I am a believer in the literary features of the Bible and of things that... Uh, Jesus is making a point by by using the extreme there to say, do what you have to do to get away from these uh, sins that dog you. So I'm not sure if he meant for people to walk around without eyes and without, a, without hands. I might be wrong, and he can sure correct me when he wants to. When I see him, I'll be willing to listen to that. But we... Uh, this is this is serious business, mm-hmm. and uh, Jesus ups the ante of it there with what he's what he's saying. And our goal should be to hate sin, right? We kill sin, or it kills us. What? And you know, say more about that, Mark. Honestly, don't you think, Bill? I mean, if you look at your own heart, and you too, Rosie, you hate sin. I hate it. It's not like you you want it, but there's mixed things going on there. There's also things that you love. And there's a conflict and an inner conflict. And sometimes the things of the Lord win and you resist that temptation and that sin. And sometimes they don't. And that's where we have to make things right with the Lord again and and get back on our feet and go. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's not so simple as to say, well, I hate sin, so I'm in good shape now. Well, the other lures are pretty, uh, pretty persuasive and, uh, we know we all have our, especially our weak areas that we struggle in. I'm sure we're losing listeners left and right talking about these <laughs> secret areas that we struggle in. You know, that, oh, I just remembered I got to go to Target here. Yeah. I got to get something for dinner. So yeah. maybe we should talk about something a little cheerier. Well, I think this is really important. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, we we are not talking about life, death, heaven, hell, eternity enough, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gotten too too mushy in our conversation um so that's my thought yeah preach it yeah i'm not gonna preach it right now because i gotta go to break oh yeah maybe when i come back i'll preach it cool yeah i'll listen dr mark muska is my guest ask the professor which means send your questions over text them to 877-933-2484 again 877-933-2484 or you can email me bill at myfaithradio.com be right back Dr. Mark Muscom, theology professor right here at the University of Northwestern, 35, 6, 7 years. You're making me feel old, man. I don't mean to do that. Yeah. I am old, though, so let's (laughs) let's be honest. We call this time with Mark Ask the Professor, so you can ask him any question you like, and the easiest way to do it for me is if you text the question over, 
877-933-2484. Or if you like to email, you can do bill at myfaithradio.com. All right, uh, Mark, this question came up. I'd like to just check in with you as well. This question came comes from Job chapter 2, verse 1. Mm-hmm. And it says that Satan came into the presence of God with the other angels, but heaven is a place with no evil. Why was Satan allowed in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is... Um... <laughs> I think we can oversimplify things with this if we're not careful, that we uh, sometimes it gets connected with God's holiness, and that means that because God is holy, that he can't tolerate the presence of sin. And some have gone as far to say that he's allergic to sin, so to speak, and I, I, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, the, the, the idea of God's relationship to sin and evil is, is he's not going to put up with it. He may be patient and not do anything right now about it, but its days are numbered, and he will deal with it decisively. So this is, uh, this is a situation in the spirit domain, and we're getting a little peek in there in Job 1 and in Job 2 about what's happening. You know, that uh, uh, in Job 1, 6, a very similar statement. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, and that's a euphemism for the angels, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So... Evidently, he's got access to God in this kind of a way. I, I wonder if it's almost like, have you ever seen these movies uh, they, back in the days of knights and battles and everything like that, when some herald is coming into enemy territory to deliver a message, and as he comes before the king, everybody around the king is just kind of, eh, eh, you know, they, <laughs> they're ready to attack mm-hmm. him, but he's speaking uh, there, although he's, he's able to talk, with the king, but he is no friend of the king. He is an enemy. And so maybe that helps a little bit yeah, with this. That, that is, that's very helpful. God was, um, he allowed uh, Satan to come before him in this kind of a way. Uh, it's an interesting study, Bill, because there's not much in the Bible about it. You have to kind of pick around a little bit and find the passages that talk about it. But God seems to have the ability to... Uh, uh, be able to command these evil spirits and these uh, spirits of darkness. One of them that comes to mind right away right now is when, um, right after David gets, uh, now do I push the cough thing when I'm yeah. going to sneeze? I'm going to sneeze yeah, here ahead. in a minute. Okay, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll you tell you when I do, but yeah. I don't want there to be, you know, people's hair fly <laughs> <laughs> from their radio when I sneeze. I got a little sneeze coming in here. It's maybe. coming, isn't it? Maybe if I rub yeah. my nose. Isn't radio great? You can do this and yeah. nobody knows. Nobody knows. What's Except going me on. and Rosie. Yeah, and they're yeah. disgusted. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, one of them that comes to mind is uh, King Saul. David just got anointed as the new king. He's still king, though Saul is. And it says that when David's anointed by Samuel, uh, the Spirit of God came upon him mightily from that day forward. Hmm. And then the next verse says, and a, uh, an evil spirit came from God to Saul and tormented him. And so God commissions this evil spirit to give him bad oh. time. So that gives you that gives you ideas here that it's just not like there's some impenetrable wall between the good and evil and between the angels and demons and between God and these demons. So it's still mysterious as all get out. And I'm fishing here, mm-hmm. you know, to try to understand this. But it seems to be a sensible that he would permit this to happen. Mm-hmm. When I think of God and angels, I mean, they're created beings. Mm-hmm. So 
does he love his created beings? They worship him. He does he love to. them? Sure. Okay. He loves his creation, and uh, this is in the spirit domain. And so, again, we don't have much access to yeah. it until after we take our last breath. Yeah. So one good. more thing about this with Satan, too, is God is very clear that he has control over Satan. Because in chapter 1, uh, Satan wants to you know, test Job being such a righteous man. And God says, you know, well, you can... You can touch his things and his family, but not him. And so he drew the line for Satan. Mm -hmm. And then in the second chapter, he says, well, you can attack Job, but you can't kill him. Yeah. So that indicates uh, Satan just doesn't have a free ticket here to do what he wants. The lines are drawn very clearly. Yeah. Mark, what's your uh, instinct, your response, if someone wants to always be blaming Satan on things that are going bad in their life. You know, I just, I try to take a teeter-totter approach to that, that there's one side of it and then there's on the other, where on the one side, Bill, I think there is far more demonic activity going on than we even imagine. Yeah. And uh, if God would pull back the blinders and allow us to see in that spirit domain, I think we would be horrified to see the battles going on and how subtle that is. So on the one hand, we have to acknowledge that we're very limited in our ability to be able to perceive this stuff. But on the other hand, you do have people that see a a demon under every rock. And uh, I think that point of excess comes for me, Bill, when it becomes an excuse for their own sinful passions Mm -hmm. and what the Bible calls the lusts of the flesh that it might be some demonic thing needling you and trying to tempt you to do something you shouldn't. But, you know, the flesh gets in there plenty good by itself, yeah, you yeah. know. And so I don't know if someone's, you know, overweight and they need to lose weight or they're diabetic and they got to stay away from the sugar and there's that chocolate cake on the counter there. I'm not so sure Satan has much of a role in that. I got a feeling it's appetites that are going on. But I bet he'll put his feet up on the desk and take credit for anything people want to give him credit for. Mm -hmm. And I think it's feasible to say that the weaknesses we do have, they're aggravated even further by demonic activity. Mm -hmm. So you may have a struggle with a foul mouth or with uh, pride and uh, Satan and his gang are more than willing to aggravate that even yeah. further. Yeah. So. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the Professor is this wonderful hour that we get to have with him, which means any question you have, send it my way, and I will ask on your behalf. You can, of course, remain anonymous. Like most people, I think I just read the questions. 877-933-2484. I'm in Matthew 4, the first 11 verses, Mark, and uh, oh. the question from this uh, text is why did Jesus not tell the devil to flee right away instead of waiting till the third temptation? Yeah, uh, here again, Bill. Uh, I kind of like the uh, the uh, uh, name of this show. You know, it's called "Ask the Professor." It doesn't <laughs> say answers from the professor, right? Because just ask. sometimes yeah. you know you just can't answer them real well, and so we can only speculate about this. It seems as though that. Uh, this was something that was ordained by God for him to be tempted like this. Uh, Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So it's almost like Jesus is going through his paces here. His ministry, his public ministry is just starting, and 
uh, my view of this is Matthew inserts this to say he is worthy as the Messiah because he is pure from sin. He does not give in even when Satan himself tempts him, but it's a test he has to pass. Mm-hmm. This is something where he has to he has to walk that path, and so uh, he he takes on these three things that Satan throws at him, and then he says, "Beat it," because he's passed the test. So. Mm-hmm. But this this looks intentional by God. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. So, and then think about that. You know, are we taken into these situations as part of our uh, finding our metal as well? Uh, I don't mind that either, though, because uh, sometimes uh, we can look at it if you want to. But uh, people get um, uh, concerned in James chapter one when it talks about uh, God not tempting anyone. Yeah, let me find uh, the verses here. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's James one thirteen, where James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when he is conceived, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The interesting thing is in the language that this writ- is written in, in the New Testament, the word for tempting and testing is the same word. And so you have to use it in the context in which it's given. God does not tempt because what's the goal of tempting? It's to, it's to have you fall and to sin, and James describes this here. What is the goal of testing? It's to fortify, to improve, and to prove your mettle, that you are following God. And so I can look at any situation where temptation or testing comes, and it's really the very same thing. I mean, I can go back to that chocolate cake again for that diabetic, that that is a temptation. Satan's trying to bring the person down and and ruin their health. But at the same time, you could look at it as a test from God to Mm -hmm. see if this person is going to trust him in the midst of a real uh, appetite situation that they're experiencing. So it's it's, kind of interesting the way that works. Yeah. We will take a little break. Rosie, please order a chocolate cake. the rest of this show would be nice. Uh, Dr. Mark Muska is our guest, and it is Ask the Professor. You can send your questions via text to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Got some great questions coming in. Erica, your question is going to be right up when we come back after the break. Again, 877-933-2484.
Okay, Dr. Mark Mosca likes the song, but he likes Great Is Our Faithfulness much better. So, here's a question. Erica wants to know, the Bible teaches that showing partiality is unjust. Did God show partiality toward the Israelites as his chosen people? So is that contradictory to him being a just God? That's a fair question. Turn his mic on. Oh. There we go. That's better. There we go. That's a fair question. Uh, I think we have to be careful to distinguish some things, though. The partiality thing that uh, I, I turned over to James 2 as an uh, in, uh, illustration of this, where let me just read a couple of the verses here, where it's uh, James says in verse 1, My brethren, don't, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes. You pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? That partiality is the one that is frowned upon in the scriptures to give preference to one group over another. And there's clearly self-interest involved with that as well. So that uh, this is... uh, uh, this is not some what you might call a dispassionate thing. When God chooses Israel, um, you know, you can step back and say, well, he had to choose somebody. And it was only temporary anyway that in the New Testament, the gospel is opened up. We just talked about that with Peter, with the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And so the nations were brought in. But, you know, you can get to the tribal level to say, well, was it partiality that he chose Levi's tribe to be the priestly tribe with Moses and Aaron in there? Is that partiality or did he just choose somebody? So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's apples and apples. Yeah. It sounds like something different. Partiality is a big deal in our society right now. And I wish we'd talk about it more. The ideas of equity, equality, partiality, favoritism, they don't really get a very clear-headed read, and it would be good for us to talk about that Mm -hmm. so that there aren't preferences being given out to people uh, with this kind of ill motive that's going on in James 2. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that makes sense, but you can probably tell that I'm working this through myself because there's so many voices that are speaking to this today, and uh, some of them I don't think are are, um, hitting the target. So Mm. it's hard to be discerning. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. We are studying Scripture and applying it to our lives. So here's a great question. Uh, For those of us truly in Christ, how does Romans 8.1 bear out with Judgment Day? I trust his sovereignty. This has always been confusing. Yeah, well, I'm not exactly sure how what he's bringing sovereignty in on this, but uh, for those uh, people who don't have their Bibles right in front of them, uh, Romans 8.1 is a great promise where Paul is saying, he just got done talking about the conflict between the flesh and the spirit and and all this. It's really uh, awful. But then he starts, well, chapter 8 starts. He didn't start it with chapter 8. But it says, there is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what does that mean for judgment? That means that promise right there is the basis of my great hope 
that when these judgments will be executed on the last day, that I have great confidence that I will not be condemned. And you either, Rosie, and you too, Bill, you know, that we have our faith in Christ and in the gospel, we depend on it. And so that uh, actually that uh, uh, that's been settled already. Uh, I love uh, Jesus. A lot of people have this verse uh, memorized. I think it's right up there with John 3.16, a little bit later in John 5.24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. <laughs> and so we don't have to stand in terror at the judgment day that we take Jesus at his word. That's what faith is. It's depending on him that this is, this is good. This is good for us. We're going we're gonna to be saved through that. Mm-hmm. So. Mark, there's a question that seems to come up two or three times a year, and mm-hmm. it's can you please comment on Melchizedek? Sure. He's a, a, a slippery guy in the <laughs> scriptures. Uh, because slippery meaning what? Well, he he comes and he does his thing, but there's not a lot said about him to describe him. And then the writer of Hebrews gets into it in uh, his book, and so it uh, raises a lot of questions. Melchizedek was alive during the times of Abraham, and we read in Genesis that Abraham paid his him tithes, and so he had a uh, uh, a, what you might call a priestly role in the world at the time of Abraham there, but we don't really get a lot. He's also a king. Let me just read a little bit of what Hebrews 7 says about Melchizedek. It says, For, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, tithes, was first of all, by the trans- translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what the Mel- Malchai and Zedek, uh, they, they mean uh, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And he's going to make a case in Hebrews that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not consecutive order, but priestly order. Like today in the Catholic Church, they have uh, their Franciscans and their Jesuits. These are orders of priests. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the big point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that Jesus is a whole different priest. Remember, the word priest means mediator or go-between, and he is a completely different priest and high priest according to this order of Melchizedek. He is not of the priestly line of Levi that was prescribed in the Old Testament law. And so that whole system now has been uh, has been uh, shifted, or I, I'm not sure quite what word to use for that, but with that priesthood of Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek, that means it's a whole new arrangement now between God and the human race. And we see that in chapter 8 of Hebrews when he talks about the new covenant that has been inaugurated by Jesus. Don't forget, when you celebrate the Lord's table 
And Jesus lifted the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He is instituting the new covenant. And the writer of Hebrews tells us exactly what this is, this this new covenant now. Uh, Hebrews 8, 7, if that first covenant that was made was faultless, the one with Moses, there would have been no occasion for a second for finding fault with them. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will will uh, affect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then he quotes from Jeremiah uh, 34, word for word, verses 31 through 34. And then the writer ends it when he says, when he said, when God said a new covenant, he made the first covenant obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So Jesus was able to do that because he wasn't of the order of Aaron and Levi. He was of this new order. So I know I'm getting into more Jesus than I am Melchizedek right now, but Mm -hmm. this, it shows you that Melchizedek is outside the lines of the whole arrangement with Israel. First of all, he lived 500 years before Israel even existed as a nation. They weren't constituted as a nation until Moses' time. So he was a whole different priest, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is who Jesus is, too. He is a priest. He is a perfect high priest, but not of the law of the Old Testament. This is a new covenant that he arranged. Because I didn't read it, the new covenant, the two great blessings of the new covenant are changed hearts and forgiveness of sin. And that's what Jesus instituted. So kind of wandered around there a little bit. I liked it, though. I was fascinated with all of it. Well, you get into the deep end a little bit, and Hebrews bounces people out sometimes. I agree. Because it's very much in the deep end of the pool. You have to study it carefully. Uh, I've known some people that have been in Hebrews in their Bible studies, and they just rave because they're taking their time and just studying it as long as it takes them. And so they're able to unpack it, but it's not something you're going to get it on the first read like some of the other uh, books of the Bible. Thank you for that, Mark. Um, if you have a question for Dr. Mark Muska, let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. Uh, Mark, in Genesis 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 4, it talks about the sons of God finding the daughters of men beautiful. What does it mean? Yeah. You know, you can give me a little head start here, so I, know, I, I should have to I should be have, page and feed I should my have Bible done that. like yeah. crazy to get to over well, I'm that. rifling through the questions, trying to yeah. stay uh, in order here. So anyway, uh, I'm there. So uh, this is uh, Genesis 6. Uh, uh, people that have been in Sunday school, they know that's the chapter that starts with Noah and the ark, yep. that God is going to judge the earth and uh, with the flood, and Noah's going to build this ark and save humanity. But at the beginning of the chapter, very interesting words here. Let me just read it. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then God decrees here that uh, the the days of humans are going to be 120 years. And then verse 4, he comes back to it. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, who, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And then it goes into the story of the wickedness of the earth and God executing the flood. So uh, this has caused theologians to scratch their head 
since day one. Uh, I was impressed, Bill. I looked at a commentary on Genesis, and it included no less than five theories of who all these people are <laughs> and and what's going on here in Genesis. And so I don't think you all want a survey of all those views because I'll even fall asleep if I, <laughs> I do that. But it's it's difficult because he uses this term, Moses does, the sons of God. And I just talked about that in Job. That is a euphemism for these the angelic beings, all right? So they appear to be evil beings, and so it sounds like they are uh, demonic powers, and they see that the daughters of men are beautiful, and this Nephilim, these uh, giants who are on the earth at that time, and they bore children to the sons of God and the daughters of men. And so is this angels having sex? with women and bearing this weird hybrid Nephilim race. It's a family show, Mark. Just, uh, I'm just trying sorry, to... okay. Um, I don't... I, I've, uh, it's possible. The best, I think, way to navigate through this in light of what the rest of Scripture says is that, first of all, Jesus tells us in Mark 12 that the angels aren't married or given in marriage, but that that's that's not something they do. And it's very uh, obvious here in verse 2 of Genesis 6 that it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So it's not just some illicit, sordid, sexual thing going on here where they're having a fling together. Is that family-friendly enough to yeah, call it fine. a fling? Yeah, that's good. All right. So it's not that. They're actually marrying them. And that doesn't jive at all. And so... Uh, to put, make a long story short, my best guess at this is that Moses is describing men on the earth that are very mighty and they are demonized, that wow. these sons of God are working through them and this is producing this uh, this super uh, human uh, Nephilim mm-hmm. uh, class of people. And so uh, what's What's uh, another real head-scratcher with this as well is, this is before the flood. And then after the flood, we hear the Nephilim being talked about again. And so you can raise your hand and go, hold it. You know, either they could tread water really well or, (laughs) you know, these Nephilim Mm -hmm. showed up after the flood too. So what's going on there? And there's not a real satisfactory answer to that either in the scriptures. So you got all kinds of uh, head-scratchers here. But that keeps me reading my Bible. Exactly. And, and listening to people and trying to figure things out. So, Got a few more minutes with Dr. Mark Muska, so send your questions over. Text them to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
That's the walk-up music for Dr. Mark Muska. And Love we, it. We gave it to him twice in one hour. Yeah. We should do it once an hour. We uh-uh, forget. Twice. But, but uh, I gave it uh, to you twice. twice. That, you know, and I love it, Bill. I A lot of people remember, you know, we... And worship services, I used to love it when they'd play these hymns like that, but then they'd tell the pianist and the organist to knock it off and let people sing it oh, a cappella. so beautiful. And they picked up the parts for it. It was just glorious to hear love the, those old hymns, you know, and, and uh, I like the contemporary stuff. I'm, I'm into, you know, all of it, but boy, that that is really fond memories mm-hmm. of the beauty of the music as well as the lyrics. It's just nice. Yeah. Mark, here's a very interesting, thoughtful question, and I will do my best to condense it. Uh, this listener had some, um, we talked about spiritual attacks earlier in the show, mm-hmm. and it's been quite a year. Um, lots of financial things that have happened, uh, stressors. Then there was a diagnosis of something on her kidney and the kidney and then the heart and the thyroid and Hmm. not living any kind of unhealthy lifestyle, not making bad choices. Just this list goes on and on. And then at what point do you say that's the result of the fall and that's what happens in life? And at what point do you say, am I under some kind of attack? Yeah. Yeah. Really, really good question. And, uh, this, uh, you know, the thing with spiritual warfare, and it, you put your finger on it earlier, Bill, that uh, people tend to go one direction or the other with this, where they see everything as in spiritual terms and demonic attacks and that, or they almost become Christian naturalists where they just hardly even acknowledge the spiritual domain and everything is just material and, and things going on here. and. Uh, I I think we, uh, especially in America, because much of this with demonic activity, it appears to be more covert in this country. You you talk to people, I get an education when I talk to some of our brothers and sisters from Africa and Southeast Asia and some of these places, India, where the demonic presences are right out there. You know, they don't have to go searching. They, right. they face them tangibly in multiple ways. And so it's much more overt in some of these uh, places around the world. I don't know if it's because of our rationalism in this country, but uh, uh, Satan seems to like to work undercover, covert a lot of the time. So uh, I'll be honest with you, my wife and I have uh, made this more a subject of our attention just in the last few months because we're picking up on the, the possibility of these demonic powers really uh, creating mischief in our own family, in our church, mm. in our country, around the world. And uh, I'll be honest, we have not maybe given it the attention that it deserves uh, in in years past. And so I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, what we've been talking about is, is that let's just cover all the possibilities then. Mm-hmm. That there may be psychological things that need to be addressed if people are suffering. There may be physical things. You really do have a disease or a growth or something like that. You need to take care of it. Mm-hmm. But there's also spiritual possibilities with that as well. So I don't think God is insulted if we ask Jesus to act against these dark powers for our sakes. Uh, he is the Lord of all, and the demons tremble at mm-hmm. him. And so... Uh, we like to uh, ask Jesus to uh, make those demons run. 
uh, make them flee mm-hmm. and uh, get them to stop pestering us. Yeah. And so uh, are they really there or are we just making this up? Uh, I don't think God's insulted by us uh, covering the bases like that. Mm-hmm. So why not? And then take the steps, though, too, to do what you need to do to follow God, to be responsible with your physical health, your mental health, your relationships with other people. Uh, do what's right the best you can there and uh, and make it a both and, 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 and in the way that you respond to these trials. I feel very terrible for this I do person. Too. That yeah. It just seems like one wave after the other yeah. is coming in and hitting this person. I so. bet that represents a lot of people listening right now, I too. I bet it does. Yeah. So. All right, Mark, thank you for that thoughtful response. I will pray for this listener. Um, it says in the Bible that when we repent of our sins, they are as far as the east is from the west, forgiven mm-hmm. by God. How then does that work with the fact that we are told that we will be given, we will give an account for everything that we have done here on earth when we meet God? Yeah, uh, that the idea is is that our sin is removed from us as far as east is from the west. And that's kind of fun because you can't calculate that. Hmm. East from west, you know, you just keep going around around the globe, right. and so it's it's again, it's an extreme statement being made to say it's gone, it is no longer on your account. Uh, the I think the way to understand that is that when we put our trust in the gospel, that Jesus, we depend on Him, that His death cancels the debt of our sin, that they're gone, and as far as God's concerned, He's not going to dredge those babies back up again. That when, you know, a lot of people like to say God forgives and forgets. And, well, how can an omniscient, all-knowing God forget anything? I, I think we can take that too literally if not, we're, we're, we're not careful. But the idea of forgetting it is the sense that he's not going to dredge it out again. It's gone. It's been dealt with. And we don't have to be carrying uh, a burden from that, from past sins. Uh, does that mean we'll be freed from it psychologically or emotionally? No, nah, not necessarily. Even the Apostle Paul seemed to carry a lasting guilty conscience about his persecuting the church. Mm-hmm. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about how Jesus appeared to Cephas, then the 12 mm-hmm. and 500 and there. And he says, and last of all, he appeared to me because <laughs> I'm least of the apostles right. because I persecuted the church. Yeah. He didn't forget that, that mm-hmm. that was Long. So, yeah, that. Uh, uh, but the idea on Judgment Day, are we going to be held account for that? Uh, I love the metaphor. I heard it years ago where someone said it's like a courtroom where the prosecutor's bringing all these things up. You know, Bill Arnold did this and that, and Rosie did this, and Mark, too, you know, did this and that. And every time these accusations are being made by the prosecutor, Jesus stands up as the defense attorney and says, I'm sorry, but that has been paid for. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And sits back down. And so we don't have to sit there and go through all this recrimination again. Uh, I think if it's a courtroom scene, we're not even going to look at the other guys. We'll just sit there and look at Jesus. Yeah. Go, Thank you, Lord. All right, Mark, let me squeeze one more in. Oh, uh, Jude yeah. one ten. yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and mm-hmm. the very things they do not understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Yep. question is, uh, would you mind expanding on this? Besides the phrase, I just don't believe that because I don't get it, what are some other practical ways we see this behavior in everyday life? Oh, well, he's he's talking about uh, people, uh, verse 8 gives us a little bit more about who they are. 
He says, uh, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. So that helps us a little bit. Rejecting authority, they're subversive, and uh, they are uh, carried about by dreaming, defiling the flesh. You can go several different directions with that. And mm-hmm. so uh, this is, uh, it's it's coming from ignorance about not really paying respect enough to the, in this case, the demonic powers. Because verse 9 before that is where uh, Jude describes this. He says, but Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against the devil a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael, the archangel, Mm -hmm. the top guy in the thing, that he didn't revile the devil. Uh, the devil is evil and he is defeated, but he still demands our respect enough where we don't think we can take him on. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of saying, Jesus, would you take care of that for me? I love that. Too. And then the devil hears that Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. I got to do something. And you know, out he goes, he, he flees from that. Yeah. He doesn't flee from us. Yeah. But when we, uh, when we uh, appeal to Jesus to take care yeah. of that, I think it's it takes care of the Mark, business. if you look at the imaginary watch on your wrist, we're actually out of time. We are? Yeah. So that wraps up our time with Dr. Mark Muska. Thank you for Goes being fast. here. As always. It does go it's, fast. It's fun. That's our whole show for the day. Thanks to the guys who showed up for Guide Talk, guys who talk, and then Dr. Mark Muska has been an amazing guest this hour. If you missed any of it, I really recommend you going back and listening at MyFaithRadio.com. If you've got a friend you'd like to send this episode to who's got some questions of their own, please do that, and I'll see you tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.